Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Boris Johnson has been in government for exactly one year. He's won a landslide majority. He's taken the country out of the European Union and he's faced the worst peacetime crisis in living memory. Alongside coronavirus, the race to agree a deal with the EU about the uh, UK's future relationship and trying to return to his pledge to level up the UK, his government has also made a lot of noise about its plans to reform the civil service. Why? Of all the things that people are talking and railing about, the civil service is not one. Is it the key to unlocking all his other aims or is it going to be a distraction? We're going to look at how actually to change this 150-year-old public institution. What does the government really need to do? and What must it absolutely try to avoid? And after much delay from the government, the Intelligence and Security Committee's report into the Russian threat facing the UK has finally been released. Will this heavily redacted report change things? And with an uneasy relationship, and that's been kind, between the government and Conservative MPs, what can Parliament do to hold ministers to account? Joining me in our virtual studio to discuss all this, we have a great lineup. Emma Norris is our Director of Research. Hi, Emma. Hi, Bronwyn. Alex Thomas, Programme Director for our Civil Service Work, who's had an awful lot to do this week with our conference on that. Alex, hi. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to be here. And also joining us is Kath Haddon, who leads our constitutional work and writes a lot about Parliament. Hello. Hi. Tony Blair talked about the scars on my back. Francis Maud accused senior civil servants of trying to undermine his reforms. Dominic Cummings has threatened a hard reign for the civil service. But why is reforming the civil service so often dressed up as a battle? Are the politicians right to be frustrated? Kath, why does all this matter? Well, it matters because it goes to the heart of how you do government. I mean, the civil service are, you know, the machine that that lets you do everything else that you want to do in government. So having them in the best condition possible, um, having them operate in the way that you want to is sort of key to, to doing everything else. It's quite unusual for a government to talk you know so overtly about civil service reform often it's dressed up as other things harold wilson was talking about you know the white heat of technology he had a modernizing agenda tony blair had a a modernizing agenda so there's often a lot of talk about bringing change to institutions that kind of stuff but civil service reform itself is quite nerdy so it's not that usual for the politicians to really overtly get into it in this way Yes, as I said, it's not something that the public is really, you know, clamouring for. So for them to go out and say, we're really going to spend quite a lot of very senior time on this, um, it's, 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 it's quite a statement. You said in that, Cath, um, it's the machine that lets politicians do what they want. What about the image, which was obviously made famous in a Yes Minister, the television series, that uh, they are, in fact, an obstacle? And this is, this is obviously part of what is, uh, is driving the government is a sense of frustration. Yeah, and that that really goes to the heart of the narrative that that builds up around civil service reform. Um, You know, you mentioned it being dressed up as a battle and the sort of the various quotes that people have used over the years to talk about it. Um, it, It's quite, it's one of these things that it is for a government coming in, especially a new government, obviously you want to present everything as you are the reformer, you are going to change things. So it's, it's kind of important, therefore, that 
the thing that you're going to change. You really emphasize how outdated it is, how much in need of that change it really is, because it adds to the narrative around that. But there's also something, I think, more fundamental than this, which is obviously politicians, you know, uh, working in parliament. Um, It's a team affair, but it can also be quite a solitary affair. And then you come into government and you are working in a very large organization. And that breeds a hell of a lot of frustration. So some of this language is about a sort of broader frustration that politicians often get with what is sometimes a very cumbersome machine. Yes, and, one, and they may not have had that much experience of running a machine quite like that. Yeah. Um, Alex, you were a senior civil servant for a long time. How does this, this story feel from your side? I mean, it must be quite exasperating in a way to have politicians come in and see uh, people um, in the civil service as an obstacle or a frustration or, or somehow not helping with what they're trying to do. So it's it's exasperating, but it's also uh, it's also energising when you get a new government and new ministers. And one of the things actually the civil service is quite good at, and arguably too good at, is um, getting on side with new ministers. So whether it's a new government coming in or whether it's a new secretary of state after a reshuffle, um, uh, the civil service very very rapidly tries to work out you know what's this government about? What's this person about? What do they want? How should I work with them? And how can I respond to them? That actually uh, means that in the early days of a government, the civil service can be too, uh, sort of too yes minister and not not enough uh, uh, no minister. And part of the art of the civil service, and I think it is an art rather than a science, is to quickly establish good relationships with your ministers, but not to uh, hold back with your advice and uh, with with best advice. So you 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 want ministers to think you're on and to know that you are on their side and that you're signed up to what they want to do. You might in you know a few weeks' time be signed up to something totally different if the government changes. Um, but in that moment, you are on their side. Um, but any scepticism or uh, concern that you uh, that you might express is you know, comes from a good place and is actually about helping them achieve their agenda, which is why and Kath referred to it. But I think one one of the things that uh, that isn't so energising and is quite difficult for the civil service is when it feels like a battle. So if a government comes in uh, with a, con- a conception that the civil service is the enemy in some way. Of course, the civil service has a job and a responsibility to demonstrate that they're not. Um, but, uh, but, but, but equally, framing it as this battle, framing it as uh, us against them, uh, isn't isn't um, isn't going to be good for day to day working relationships. It's not going to encourage uh, um, civil servants to give their best advice to uh, ministers and it's going to make the whole thing feel very attritional it's also going to put people on guard and it's going to make civil servants very uh, very defensive and so rather than taking responsibility for uh, doing things that, that that ministers want and this does go to some of the points about accountability and responsibility for civil service reform they're more likely to tick boxes and cover their backs Yes, well, we might we might get into some of those important points which we've been discussing earlier in the week in our big conference on this on 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 Monday. Emma, we're not at this point of um, of it of, of ministers saying overtly this is a battle. On the other hand, part of their agenda, which the civil service needs to help them achieve, is is now about civil service reform. What do we know about what they want to do? So I think, you know, but when you're asking why are they making this such a big priority, and I think one of the reasons is they need civil service reform to deliver some of the big priorities that they have in terms of policy and major projects. So, for instance, we know there's going to be huge investment in major infrastructure projects over the coming years. And actually delivering big infrastructure projects on time and to budget hasn't been a strong suit in government. So it would make sense for them to think about how they bring in senior expertise of 
overseeing large, expensive infrastructure projects. I think net zero is another really good example. I mean, it might be on the back burner right now, but in 2021, when we're now due to hold a COP, this is going to be a massive policy priority. But delivering net zero requires some really technical expertise, deciding you know, which kind of technology government should back, hydrogen, tidal, overseeing massive engineering projects, retrofitting millions of homes. To deliver that kind of policy, you need scientists, you need engineers, you need climate specialists in government. And right now, those are in really short supply. So there's all reasons of a policy that stretches right across all kinds of departments. And, and of course, there's coronavirus as well for making this uh, this urgent. But their, their thoughts about what to do started before coronavirus, didn't they? I mean, we, we've heard, um, you know, from, from Dominic Cummings for years, but immediately after the general election, uh, we heard from over, over Christmas about how this was really a, a priority. So, what, what do we what do we know, uh, any of you, about you know what the government really wants to do on this? So, I think um, we know that they're serious, as you say. This uh, this goes back to um, uh, th- this is a this is a core celebra for Dominic Cummings, but it's also something that Michael Gove has uh, has has thought about. And Michael Gove is not an inexperienced minister, so I think we know we know that they're serious and they want to do it, and they see it as a as a means to the end, as Emma was saying, of what they want to achieve. We know that they're interested in uh, skills. Um, uh, and something that we would uh, certainly support at, at, at the IFG, again, as Emma was saying, getting the right people with the right skills into government and also making the best use of the people uh, who are already in government, who who are data experts, scientists, economists, uh, uh, analysts. Um, we know uh, they want to uh, take a lot of civil servants out of London and uh, uh, go further than governments have in the past uh, and, and shifting policy civil servants out of uh, out of London, whether that's to York, Manchester, uh, any, any, anywhere uh, else. Whether that is a uh, whether that's a uh, you know a cover for centralisation, it's a sort of um, uh, uh, an excuse to actually hoard power in the centre or, or, or a genuine wish to decentralise. Um, uh, and we also know they want to reduce turnover and encourage officials to to stay in uh, stay in their jobs for for longer to to improve accountability and responsibility. I could go on, but I will stop there. What we what we don't know is what their plan really is to do that. So they've set a direction. Michael Gove's given speeches, and we've heard also in the last couple of weeks from Alex Chisholm, the Chief Operating Officer of the Civil Service. Um, but we haven't yet seen a really concrete plan as to how they're going to do all of this. Yeah, and Kath, look, we we turn to you as our in-house historian on many things, and mm. on this, do you have a sense that these ideas have become more mainstream? Obviously, there are things that the institute has been arguing about since it was created about twelve years ago, but it it, it, it was alone. Um, people who argued for this kind of thing were out in the cold a bit, weren't they? Um, a decade or so ago, do you get the sense it's it's become more accepted that this is what needs to change? Yeah, I think it's. A, I think absolutely it has changed, especially if you take the longer view on it. Um, I mean, if you go back to the the 60s, you know, the idea of bringing in more specialists, especially yeah. economists, statisticians, etc., that was still pushing very strongly against the sort of culture of the civil service that you needed these generalists who are able to turn their hand to anything, who are just sort of clever enough coming out of Oxbridge colleges and so forth. I mean, it's always a bit of a caricature, but it had some reality to it. And even if you go to the sort of early 2000s, it's when they created this idea of the policy profession, which was partly just saying that doing the sort of stuff that Alex has alluded to, some of the sort of policy advice, certainly, but also just fixing things of 
um, you know, solving difficult policy problems, overseeing some of the management things. This was still something that that a lot of generalists would do and would be able to, again, move around different parts of the civil service. These days, um, it, there is much more expectation, partly because of reforms that have already happened in the last 10 years. There's much more expectation that you can have people in the civil service who are sort of, you know, deep experts on commercial policy, um, you know, who have proper finance skills, who um, are, you know, data experts. The growth of sort of digital policy, um, you know, has become it's become a much more interesting option for civil servants there's still a lot more that can be done to you know get more scientists in to make these people able to get to the top of the civil service as well because it's not just about them having uh, being in their own little niches and uh, not able to be involved in sort of the big decisions that go on inside government you need to make sure that it's all uh, woven together but it definitely has shifted in terms of those expectations about um, specialisms but it hasn't changed that much um, especially in the last t- 10 years on turnover of staff which is definitely something we've been pushing. Yeah and I think on turnover you know actually things are still much the same as they've always been the career model in Whitehall still says the best way to get a pay rise to become more senior is to move around really often and um, if people look up to the top of the civil service most permanent secretaries with a few honourable exceptions largely come from that traditional policy generalist background. I think it's probably also important to mention that ministers can also be guilty here. There is, you know, a tradition amongst ministers of tending to favour fixer style civil servants who move around a lot rather than experts who stay put. So you need both the civil service system to change, but you also need um, ministers to change um, what they prefer as well. I think that's a really important point because um, in all this emphasis on on the civil service and the problems of the civil service and so on, it's easy to forget about the problems that ministers themselves can inject into the uh, into the picture, including by uh, demanding things um, that they may not have thought through completely. Yes, and this and this goes back back a little bit to what we were saying a, mo- a moment ago uh, on how how responsive the civil service is to ministers. Certainly in in my experience, actually, what a permanent secretary wanted and valued in the people working for them were people who could deliver for ministers. And so, of course, it's a sort of uh, self-fulfilling feedback where where, um, the civil service is, is looking to individuals to promote and to bring on who are uh, uh, themselves sort of good at responding to uh, to ministers, and so there's you can you can create uh, what actually is a is a perfectly sort of fun- functional organisation, but it but it creates strange incentives around turnover. So as we just pull together this 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 first section on why the government's doing it and and, and what it's doing, do we think that the prime minister himself buys into this? He's, he's just had his first year. All kinds of things have happened. Uh, many he didn't foresee. Um, and and he's all um, energized about uh, about the leveling up agenda and trying to get a sense of optimism again. And he's been in Scotland this week trying to make the case for the union and so on. Is this just a passion of Michael Gove, um, with this, this floating title of the the, the the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which gives him license to do all kinds of things? Is it is it is it Gove's passion and Dominic Cummings, or do you think the Prime Minister really buys into this as something that needs to happen? I'm I'm not sure I would call it a passion um, for Boris Johnson. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps it is. But I would definitely say that he's bought into this. I think um, 
both, you know, Dominic Cummings, the position that he's in um, and the license that he's been given on this and the fact that that Michael Gove is is allowed to sort of carry on with it shows that, you know, this is something that is endorsed from the top. But I think there's other signs as well, which is especially a lot of the changes that we've seen uh, even in recent weeks around how number 10 is organized of, you know, putting in new positions um, as a new sort of data expert coming in soon. Um, and, you know, the, just the reorganization there and also, you know, getting rid of your cabinet secretary and wanting to bring in someone new there. It shows that he is definitely taking an interest in how the civil service is working. So I'm sure he's persuaded that doing something about it is important. The thing I'm not sure is whether or not he'll still be interested when you get into the detail of actually doing this stuff. So let's turn to talking about how the government should go about the nitty gritty of this kind of reform. Alex, who's in charge of it for a start? So uh, Michael Gove at ministerial level, although as we've as we've said, um, uh, Dominic Cummings uh, is no doubt taking a, a close interest. Um, on the civil services side, it's Alex Chisholm, uh, who I mentioned earlier, who's the chief operating officer, and he's been building a team uh, to get this uh, get this work done. He uh, launched the uh, sort of the beginning of the government's uh, or the civil services thoughts about uh, about this at uh, the uh, annual civil service jamboree uh, last week, which is called Civil Service Live, which was held virtually this year for obvious reasons. Uh, and he set out, I won't run through them all, but he, he set out 10 areas of, 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 uh, uh, of work that the civil service will be, um, will be taking uh, forward. And they cover exactly the sort of things we've been talking about, ministerial official relationships, location of civil service, Skills, uh, uh, digital investing in, investing in, uh, in 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 the existing infrastructure, and 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 so on. Um, so there's the there's the kind of beginnings of a uh, of a structure and a program of work there. One of the things that he said is he wants to consult with civil servants. He wants to um, uh, he wants to have a conversation about how best to do this. And certainly the civil services instinct, it may not be minister's instinct, will be to try and bring people along uh, uh, as part of this programme in order to make the changes that they uh, want to uh, make. One of the things we'll be watching out for, and I think will will help determine that whether this is successful or not, is, is whether in what may be quite an attritional atmosphere of, um, you know, Cabinet Secretary uh, leaving his uh, job uh, of you know noises about uh, abolishing or reforming Public Health England and other organisations, um, uh, suggestions that that the Cabinet Office might be quite radically reformed. Whether that whether in that context they they really can bring bring people a, a, a along. So so we should assume that in the, in in yeah in the auditions for the the next uh, Cabinet Secretary, the question of buying into this reform is absolutely central. That, that person's not going to get that job unless he or she says, right, I'm on for this. And I, I shared your view of that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure one of the uh, the applications have closed now. So for any uh, would be cabinet secretaries, it's too late, I'm afraid. But um, uh, but one of the uh, I'm, I'm sure one of the um, sort of uh, things they'll have been asked to bring to that process is what is your vision for civil service reform? How are you going to actually run this machine, both from the centre, as Kath was saying earlier, and uh, across all the, all the government departments in a way that is going to help us uh, get done the things that we want to get done. 
Yeah. Okay, so we've had a long speech from Michael Gove and, and, and it set out some of the things we've been talking about, about more skills, about stopping civil servants moving around jobs, so so much about getting people out of London and so on. Um, but we haven't really had the, the, the detail about how they should go about this. I mean, Emma, in your view, what's what's the first thing you would do if you were the new cabinet secretary? Um, <laughs> so I think the you, first thing is picking what your number one priority is. Um, what's the thing that you think most needs to change? Yeah. Um, and me, I think I would zoom in on skills. Um, like I say, I think civil service reform will stay at the top of the political agenda so long as it's helping them deliver their policy priorities. So what skills do you need in the civil service that aren't currently there or aren't there sufficiently to deliver those priorities? And, and, what, and what, skills, what skills are those? So I think that there is quite a big gap around science and engineering, if you think um, about some of the priorities that um, are going to be top of the list in the next couple of years. I think that, you know, there are um, some entry routes for those individuals, but you tend not to get particularly senior unless you take on management expertise, when actually sometimes you want, you know, science expertise, engineering expertise, not to be used in a management setting, but to be used in a knowledge setting to say, what do you know um, and how can you use it to to help me deliver these policies? So thinking about how you get um, senior scientists, senior engineers into government to help deliver some of those headline priorities will be my number one. Um, priority. Great. And let's take take the one that Emma's written at length about and and Alex was talking about, about stopping the turnover of civil servants between jobs in search of promotion and and, and pay and generally getting on in in their career. So what would any of you do to stop this? How would you change um, the procedures that are there at the moment to encourage people to stay more in their, longer in their jobs? So, So I think it's, it's an interaction between culture and the specific incentives that have grown up over time that uh, reward civil servants in particular ways. So some of that uh, is, um, and it's it's not so much moving to get uh, a pay increase, it's moving in order to get the uh, experience because you're far more likely to be promoted if you've done three jobs in six years rather than one job for six years and really shown uh, uh, shown that you've you've delivered in that in that role. So uh, I I would start changing both the specific incentives for serv- civil civil servants about how they get paid, how they get um, uh, rewarded, uh, and so I think uh, uh, for for example at the moment um, uh, it is very very hard for. Uh, any senior manager in the civil service to do anything, give anything other than a small non-consolidated, which means not incorporated into your pay and pension arrangements, uh, bonus at the end of a year for a bit of work that's gone really well. Um, so uh, it's it's one specific concrete example. But if you were able to, when, when someone had stayed in post, uh, delivered a really significant piece of work uh and i don't just mean you know advising ministers on it or anything else i mean actually making something happen in the real world that is is a is a major achievement you could give them a significant uplift to their that to their pay that would be incorporated uh, fully in their pay it would it would uh, feed through into their pension uh, and that would then i think anyway sort of incentivize them to do the same thing over a sustained period uh in uh, in, in in that job so you'd be giving people who were developing real uh expertise and taking responsibility um the uh, uh the opportunity to get a sense of progression in their careers and in their uh wage packets um that at the moment you can only get by um by spinning around the system and uh, getting promoted 
But Alex and Emma, I mean, isn't this when it gets really difficult? Because obviously paying civil servants more money um, is not something that the politicians often like to do because it's the thing that gets them bad headlines and so forth. Um, and, and also it goes to that point about bringing in more specialisms because that might mean having a wage that is comparable to something you might get in the private sector. Is that Are they going to do it? But I don't think it's necessarily about paying civil servants more than you would otherwise. It's about giving them a pay rise they get for changing role whilst they stay within a role. And that's, I think, the key difference. Rather than incentivising people to move to get a promotion or to get a pay rise, um, you say you're doing really well in this role. You're performing really highly. You've done excellent work. We're going to give you the rise you would get by moving right here and keep yeah. you where you are yeah all right so i find that completely persuasive but what about the even more difficult thing of of rewarding someone for for innovation and for taking risks uh even though those may go those may go wrong well i, I think you reward people for taking risks that work you don't yeah. uh, uh yeah. and and if you if you take risks and uh, you, you've got a culture that supports you so, so if you take a risk and it doesn't work i'm not sure that should lead to some sort of uh uh, some sort of specific reward, but um, um, but I do think you can. I, th- I think you can recognise that within within the system. I completely agree with Emma that it doesn't necessarily mean paying civil servants more. I think one of the things that George Osborne did that was correct was get rid of the increments whereby civil servants uh, got paid more just for time served. This needs to be about um, uh, about uh, uh, about recognising um, uh, that there are some very high performing civil servants and some less high performing. Uh, civil servants. I do also just think it's it's not all about pay. The civil service is a, and I know you want to either come onto culture or sort of recognise it's harder. But the civil service is a very culture driven organisation. It's civil servants generally aren't that motivated by pay. So you really need to change the the underlying uh, environment as well. So what what is it about that environment that would, that would change it? That would that would change the way that people, you know, are rewarded in subtle ways um, for doing work. But th- this also goes to the point about risk. I mean, yeah. um, asking civil servants to take on risks and, um, you know, to try and do more innovative things means that ministers also have to be willing to bear the costs of those risks when that means that they've got the Public Accounts Committee then looking into it and saying, well, hang on, you spent this money and it didn't work out when they've got, you know, the opposition or the media able to use it against them. So, it's also about how much they're willing to, you know, it goes to what Alex was saying earlier about the incentives that um, civil servants pick up all the time from ministers. If they feel that their minister is risk averse about something, they will be risk averse. If they feel that their minister is willing to try new things, then they will be more innovative in the options that they put forward. One of the one of the reasons not just to focus on ministers as well is that we're talking about probably twenty thousand civil servants out of four hundred and thirty four hundred and fifty thousand yeah. who are minister focused and see permanent secretaries and are part of the central policy core. It's it's a very different challenge, and I think they are more responsive to to pay. Um, uh, the talking about the um, looking at the sort of performance of operational uh, delivery uh, officials who are who are out there doing frontline jobs. And that brings me on to the final point in this section, really. What about moving people out of London, moving civil servants out of London, which the government has talked about? Should we take this seriously? And are they talking about some of the 400,000, many of whom are outside London anyway, or are they talking about some of the 20,000? Yes, 80% of civil servants are outside London, um, but 80% of senior civil servants are inside London, which tells you quite a lot about the story. Um, I I think they are um, very serious about this. And actually, I think 
the civil service. I've I've had more enthusiasm and excitement about this from civil servants than almost any other bit of uh, civil service reform as I've been talking to them over the last six months or so. Um, so I, th- I think there's energy in the system. Uh, and I think it, it is overall a good thing, but don't expect it to change the world. It's much less significant than um, where uh, genuine power and money uh, sit. It might even be used as, uh, and this came up in the, the conference on, on Monday, it might even be used as a, a bit of a cover for, for centralising power. So we've got all these civil servants outside London, therefore we don't need to actually uh, actually push, uh, push power and resources uh, out into local government or wherever. I think we need to remember the difference between um, really devolving power and money and simply relocating bits of central government that remain in their essence central government. Exactly. With that, let's do a pivot to talking about Russia and Parliament this week. The report that came out this week was written in 2019, last year, but the Intelligence and Security Committee has only just released it. From disinformation on Twitter to dealing with oligarchs and their money and their influence on the UK, it looks how the UK and its institutions are tackling or failing to tackle Russia's attempts to influence and to encourage instability, a a picture that it describes extensively. Kath, this has been a much trailed report. What, What did it say? Well, it didn't say a lot of what people thought it might have done. I think, um, you know, because of the fact that it was so long delayed, lots of conspiracy theories came up that this was going to be some kind of study into how Russia affected the vote, particularly the votes uh, over Brexit. Um, In actual fact... And Scottish independence. And and Scottish independence vote as well. It does talk about that in a bit more detail. In actual fact, there's not a lot of new revelations in terms of things that Russia has been doing. Most of it was already known um, in terms of that sort of disinformation campaign, as it's called, Um, over the Brexit referendum, the biggest revelation was that not only had the government not um, asked for any kind of review of what had happened, but that actually a lot of the people involved with it, whether it's uh, MI5 or the Electoral Commission, um, weren't really, didn't really think that this was their responsibility. Um, And that kind of goes to actually what's the most important thing coming out of this report because it you know everything that it says about what Russia is doing is not wholly surprising um what it says about the government's response and the sort of organization um of that response is a little more surprising because it it shows that it's quite patchy actually Um, so it's actually more searing in a way about the UK than it is about Russia or more surprising about the UK It is. Um, And it's surprising mostly because especially in the last 10 years, there's been this big push for national security to be much more joined up. It's the reason why we had a National Security Council developed. Obviously, as the report says, a lot of that focus has been on counterterrorism. Um, you know, in the last 20 years since since 9-11, that's been the big focus. And, you know, it's implying that actually, perhaps both sort of these agencies, the you know, Whitehall departments and successive governments have slightly dropped the ball when it comes to um, the idea of hostile states, as they're referred to, um, who might want to use all sorts of, you know, mechanisms to try and influence or undermine the UK. Um, And in particular, looking at Russia, because of, you know, since the Cold War, there's been this kind of difficult um, relationship whereby the UK and other Western states have tried to bring Russia, you know, more into line with their way of thinking, thinking that they can 
sort of work alongside them in, in the same way as other countries. But in actual fact, this kind of stuff has still been going on. So it's sort of saying, actually, we need to be a bit more rigorous in terms of how we treat um, Russia and treating them, you know, as a state that can be hostile in these ways. So Alex, to you, is, is this a portrait of innocence or incompetence? I think it's it's definitely these sorts of questions that will concern the sort of security apparatus in Whitehall. I think it's a combination. On, I mean, it, it's a combination of a sort of, and we see this with China as well, um, The uh, some of the sort of errors or naivety around the big geopolitical uh, calls that uh, successive governments have made over the last decade or, or two around China and, and, and Russia, and um, the lack of a kind of whole state approach uh, to tackling some of these. Uh, what is a, what is a, what's a whole so, state approach? I mean, I, I was very struck in the in the um, uh, in, in the ISC report by how they talk about how Russia was, a, you know, very very kind of nimble and uh, able to mobilise because of a small team of um, uh, securocrat types around Putin, uh, mobilise all of its um, state apparatus to, uh, to to disrupt to 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 support its kind of geopolitical and security goals and well, we we've just got a small team around the, the well, we, we've got a very small team around the prime minister what's what's but, um what's the big difference but, it, but it's not the complete focus of the government and uh, uh there's lots yes. of other things going on and um again you could say with mark said being the national security advisor but also being the cabinet secretary and also uh head of the civil service there's a uh, less of a kind of laser focus on it one of the things that mark said did uh, bring to the security world and was trying to bring that across the wider civil service was something called the fusion doctrine um, which was about drawing all of this stuff together uh, and i think this uh this shows and the the report acknowledges the limits of the fusion doctrine you can bring stuff together but unless you've really uh, got an apparatus to, to to kind of bring the the official and political focus to these sorts of issues it's uh you know it's very hard to do and hasn't been as successful as as it as it might have been Hmm. Emma, do you th- I mean you've written a lot about reviews and inquiries and so on. What you know, what's the status of this one, and does does the government have to pay any attention? Well, so you know, one of the most controversial parts of the report is the committee's criticism of the failure to examine whether Russia sought to influence the referendum, um, and you know, the report calls for a Mueller-style investigation. I think that's going to attracts quite a lot of support. Indeed, it's already attracted some support from the opposition. I think governments are unlikely um, to, to go for that. Instead, I think the really important um, question here is who is going to be responsible for taking forward the findings of this report? You know, Kath and Alex have just identified um, lots of different areas that need further work. You know, does um, responsibility for disinformation need to transfer to the agencies rather than DCMS and the Electoral Commission? Um, You know, are some of our um, central security structures like the National Security Council, like the Fusion Doctrine, not actually working as effectively as they should be. And if not, what should what should come in their wake? And um, I think the really important point is who is going to to take some of that forward and make sure that this report leads to action. So it's a really I- I- interesting question, and I think um, uh, for my money, uh, MI5 is probably the, the most embarrassed by this, uh, just the, the kind of a searing account of how little investigation it did, not even considering that protection of democratic processes like elections were really part of its remit. But the political parties have got some discomfort on each side, don't they, about this. With, um, with the new row that two members of the committee, Theresa Villiers and Mark Pritchard, took Russian donations to their constituency parties, although the donations were legal, I should say, and, and those two MPs weren't involved in the evidence sessions for this report because it was done 
in the previous parliament. And meanwhile, Labour's been um, tied up in knots about about um, uh, the previous leader, Jeremy Corbyn's um, apparent support for many things Russian uh, and, and his very muted criticism, for example, of the Skripal uh, poisoning mm. and so on. So is, is, do you think that the political parties are handicapped in doing something about Russia? I think um, on the, this was actually one of the most interesting parts of the report, how careful in a way um, it was in, in sort of throwing around um, any of the discussion about Russian money and the influence that it had. I mean, it's gone much stronger than the government um, in terms of saying that this is an important part of how Russia is seeking to influence. The government are still very much on the line that, you know, Russian money coming into London is about prosperity um, and not to see it that way. But this point about political influence, I think, is something that has the potential to blow up. And we've seen this before with all sorts of, um, you know, controversies about how politicians might be influenced by mon- uh, money. They've talked about the House of Lords and, you know, the the difficulty there of controlling how um, members of the laws, what connections they have, and that there may be problems there. The issue, I think, about uh, funding of MPs, as you say, it's legal. So the issue is really about political embarrassment. um, And that goes to this sort of wider question about, you know, if Russia is supporting your aims as a political party, how does that affect your view of Russia's ability to influence? Well, the bit that's really live about this, it seems to me, is is, is the Scottish question, because we're coming up for Scottish Parliament elections next year, and uh, the polling on Scottish independence is, is going to matter a lot. There's going to be a lot of attention to it ahead of next year. So um, this isn't just an academic question of the past um the past you know the past few years the past no it's not and and also this goes to the why you know actually the report is too limited in a way because it's very much talking about um disinformation campaigns and the role of intelligence agencies and the national security apparatus but actually there are much wider issues about you know uh, the role of social media, political advertising campaigns, where the money comes from, all of that. How we protect, um, you know, our political discourse online, um, whether it's sort of hostile states or whether it's individual actors or campaigners. Um, and this, uh, this is a much bigger issue um, that I think, you know, the government is thinking about. It's, it's got this defending democracy program, but it's only just got started. And it's, it's really difficult to regulate free speech um I mean, that's yeah. one of the roots of this, this stuff I, I remember writing submissions to uh, to ministers uh you know 10 years ago uh, talking about just how difficult whether it was the the av referendum or um elections at the at, at the time um just how difficult it is to regulate the content of a political campaign and that is not something that we've cracked and this this report doesn't um uh, doesn't doesn't solve that what about the the defence and security review, uh, which the government is again trying to do this autumn, just in a couple of months? Is that going to answer some of these questions? I think it will need to look at some of the coherence questions that we were talking about um, earlier, and it is an opportunity to uh, to address some of that. Whether a, you know quite a rapid review can really get into the the, the, the meat and the detail of these very kind of technical, complicated uh, questions, I doubt. But but no doubt it will be able to improve and refine some of the organisation uh, in, in in Whitehall on it. One of the big questions that it will pose is how much does it prioritise, um, you know, Russia as a threat um, compared to other issues, uh, whether it's China, whether it's counterterrorism, whether it is now pandemics, um, you know, how important does it see this issue? 
a kind of prioritization of the ranking of these things. And final big constitutional question to Kath and, and Emma, um, what does this tell us about Parliament's powers to demand reports that haven't been published in general? And I'm also thinking of the one on apparently on, on Pretty Patel's handling of the Home Office and allegations of bullying and so on. Well, so the ISC report is a very different report to most of the things that Parliament puts out. Uh, Most select committees can publish to their own timetable, but the ISC is set up by legislation and it is the Prime Minister who authorises when things can be released under it because it's dealing with so much secret stuff. Um, I think it is going to pose questions about whether or not that model should continue, um, but you really need the government to support changing the model. Um, the Pretty Patel stuff is more difficult because, again, that is something that the government can just choose to put out. This is a report that went to the prime minister to allow the prime minister to make a decision about one of his own ministers, whether or not they had broken his ministerial code. So parliament, um, you know, with a government majority doesn't have the power to demand it. Uh, you know, the situation we saw in 2019, 2017 to 2019, where where government had lost the majority and parliament was able to order the government to give it information would be quite different. But in this circumstance, it's going to be hard for them to sort of force this report out. All right. Completely different thing. Emma, last thought? Um, I just completely um, agree with Kath. I think it would be a different story um, a year or two ago. But right now, and parliament's more constrained in the power that it has. Yeah. And anyway, has just risen for the summer. <laughs> um, so some, some some weeks of comparative quiet coming up. Well, with that, thank you all. That's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Emma Norris, Alex Thomas and Kath Haddon. Thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more of our work, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. And if you want more in particular on civil service reform, then you can watch or listen to our day of events on Monday which is on the future of the civil service and government's plans to shake up Whitehall. And on Tuesday as well, we explored how MPs have tried to influence the UK's future relationship with the EU, um, the talks on that and what they hope to see in the final settlement. You can listen to all that at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review and you can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. With that, and as Parliament is now in recess until September the 1st, it feels as if summer proper is now upon us. But your inside briefings will continue. See you next week.